seated. Let's see, we turn in your Bibles to Psalm 15. If you're visiting with us, we just ended a 12-part series on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And as we're drawing near to the end of summer, this evening and Lord willing, next evening we'll be focusing on a psalm. Tonight, Psalm 16, and you can find that on page 693 in the Pew Bibles. No, I'm sorry, not 693. That's a hymn number. You can find it on 453. Children, here are your questions for this evening. First, what gave David comfort when his life was full of trouble from his enemies? 2 in verse 10 we read, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. In the book of Acts, who do Peter and Paul say this is about? Three, what are some things that you see in this psalm that should give God's people comfort? Psalm 16, this is the word of God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we are so thankful that you are our God and our Lord and our Master. And you have spoken and we have heard. And Lord, we do pray that whenever we read your word or hear your word read, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. We pray for much the same this evening through the preaching of your word, as your spirit would move, that you would please be with the preacher and please be with all of us, that we would hear from you through the message tonight. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior, with the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this psalm is called a mitkam of David. And to be fully honest with you, no one seems to really know what a mitkam is. Uh, some say it simply means that it's a writing. That seems to be the simple best description of what a mitkam is. But it is a psalm, and it's a beautiful psalm. And I want to tonight have us make three stops as we look at the psalm tonight. The first stop is back in 1000-ish B.C., thousand years before the time of Christ. 
And then we'll stop in 30 AD with special significance around that time. And then I want us to see that this is for us, this psalm is for us in 2023, right here tonight. As we come to this psalm, we don't only want to look at David's experience, but we don't want to overlook David's experience. We also want to see in this psalm how it points us to Christ, but we don't want to run too quickly to Christ. And we want to understand how this psalm applies to us, but we don't want to plug ourselves in to this psalm too fast. And so three parts tonight as we look at the psalm. First of all, David's experience. First of all, we want to enter into David's life experience as the king of Israel. The important thing to see in this psalm is that the overarching truth for David in his life is that the Lord is always before him. The Lord is always on his mind. The Lord is always on his heart. The Lord is always ever-present consciously in his life. And we find David here where we often find the psalmists, in the presence of God, speaking to God, but also at the same time sending a message to everyone who's reading. The setting and circumstances of the psalm aren't 100% certain, but it does seem like he's in a situation where he is in trouble, which was often the case for David. While the position of the king of Israel was truly blessed and certainly a great honor, it also came with a lot of trouble. And David certainly had a lot of trouble in his life, and he was often under attack. And when there was no earthly refuge, he had to look to his ultimate security, and that was in his relationship with God. And because he had that, he had a higher view that took him above his circumstances. He had his eyes fixed on God. The way he addresses God is very important for us to see. If you look at the first verse, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my God. I mean, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The first word there for God is that general sense of the one true and living God, God Almighty, L. The second, when you look at Lord, and probably in your Bibles, all capital letters, that is Yahweh. If I were Jewish, I would not be allowed to say that. It's that unutterable name for God, that covenant God of Israel, the one true and living God. And then the third one, capital L, small letters, my Lord, is Master Adonai. And so David is saying, the Lord God Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant God of Israel, is my God. The Almighty God who's bound himself to his people is my master. He is my Lord. Connected to those things, the Almighty God is my refuge, the true God is my God, and this God is my personal master. And then he says, this God is my highest good. It's my highest good. Above all things, he is my good. And that puts everything else in perspective. I think we can look at it this way. The best of the best things in life brings no joy if the Lord's not in it. And the worst of the worst things in life have their sting muted if the Lord is in it. And so anyone who has the Lord God as their God and master 
knows that their highest good that brings everything else into perspective is that relationship with the Lord. That is David's confidence. The Lord has shown him the path of life. The path of life is fellowship with God. And the path of life is walking with God in fellowship, and that's where Scripture instructs us. But this isn't some rote walking with God. This isn't some some burden to the psalmist. It's a very intimate walk with the Lord. He knows that the Lord is, is, is the one who cares for him, and he speaks freely to this Lord who is right there, right at his right hand. And he starts to describe the blessings that he has in the Lord. And he uses, he uses earthly descriptions for describing his heavenly blessings. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He pictures all the abundance of his needs supplied by this cup that overflows. The lot of his life is in the hands of the Lord. The boundaries of our life are in pleasant places, protected by the Lord, and he has this beautiful inheritance in the Lord. All these wonderful things are David's in the Lord. That helps him to have the right perspective on life, no matter what comes to pass. He's truly blessed. And he looks around and he remembers that the other people in the Lord are blessed as well. They're the excellent ones in the land. And so he shares this delight with them, but he also looks at them and he appreciates them. He considers the other saints in the land as the excellent ones. They're blessed and they're a blessing. What an amazing thing. Do we sometimes overlook that when we look at each other? Look at other saints in the Lord. Do we take for granted that we have a tremendous blessing in relationships with the saints of the Lord who are also in the kingdom of God? What a tremendous thing that is. Truly blessed. David did have a lot of enemies for sure, but he also had good comrades in the faith that were a huge support to him. But in contrast to that, he looked around at, his, at the world around him and he sees that, that there's a fool's lot as well. There are people who run after other gods. There are people who actually live their lives in misery without the one true and living God and, and make their focus to run after these other gods. And, and David would have literally seen people worshiping these little gods. Tragically, his very own son becomes obsessed with multitudes of gods, some of them absolutely hideous. And David understands that their lot is miserable. In fact, he despises the fact that they worship other gods. He wants no part in that. And because he's satisfied with his relationship with the Lord, he knows he doesn't need any of that. And so at least scratching the surface, that's David's experience in writing the psalm. Now let's move to the unmistakable messianic signpost right here in this psalm. Part of this psalm applies directly to Christ's experience, and, and 
we'll find out that that's on apostolic authority. Go back to our passage, verse 10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. It's evident that the individual being referred to will, in fact, go to the grave. But something strange will happen. There will be no decay. Without embalming, that decay begins fairly quickly. Remember, Lazarus in the grave for just four days. Behold, he stinketh. But this one, though he'll be in the grave, will not see decay, nor will he be abandoned to Sheol, or to hell in some translations. What did David see? It's hard to know exactly what David saw. He certainly was a prophet. He certainly had many visions of the coming Christ, but he certainly could not have seen the specific person of Jesus the Christ. But that clearly is who is in view here. Now there are many things in this psalm that Jesus would have experienced himself, that that comfort, that solace, that nearness of his Father. Many things that Jesus would have would have been able to testify himself to in this psalm. But there was a point in his earthly ministry, and we call it the passion, when all that comfort and all that sense of God's God's presence, all that peace was assaulted by that forsakenness that he experienced in the passion. Jesus was crucified and dead. And he was buried in the tomb. And he was laid in a tomb for three days. And his soul was kept. And his body was preserved. And this one little verse is a very, very rare glimpse into the deep mystery of what was going on in the tomb. And we're really not given much, but at least we know that his soul was not abandoned to Sheol and his body saw no corruption. Now, there is a little confusion and a lot of us stumble over it with the Apostles' Creed because of the order of things when we confess that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and he descended into hell. Now, the order of that in our is a little confusing because we know that Jesus did not literally go into hell. And any sound commentator you'll read on that, referring to the creed, will say that that has to do with his earthly suffering, especially there upon the cross in that deep anguish. It was the equivalent of hell. And so we know that this stands true, that Jesus did not descend into hell, and what we understand is that, what we do know is that his soul went to be with the Lord and his body laid in the grave for three days. But he was raised incorruptible. He was raised incorruptible. And then he ascended to the right hand of glory where he reigns now in in a human physical body 
with a human soul bound forever in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. That's what gives us great assurance that we too will have our bodies raised to glory. Raised incorruptible. I want you to look at what Peter and Paul both say about this. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We'll just look at two passages in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 24, Peter is preaching at Pentecost. And the Jewish leaders needed to hear this very clearly. Very clearly. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 24. Begin in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says, concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell with hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption." This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then the Apostle Paul. We jump ahead to chapter 13 in Acts, beginning in verse 26. Paul preaching in Antioch. This is the apostolic authority that I was referring to before. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, what God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. 
And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he died, served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised from the dead did not see corruption. We'll just end there. We see the point that David could not have been speaking about himself. And Peter and Paul both attest to the fact that this directly had to do with Jesus. Well, we certainly can't get to personal application until we have understood at least something of what David experienced and until we've understood the fulfillment in Christ. And we can understand in Christ that the rich blessing that David wrote about is richer than David could ever knew because we have the fullness of it in Christ. And so you might say that everything that David saw coming down the pike, we see magnified in Christ. We make the same confession. God Almighty, the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our Lord. We make that same confession without reservation. But now we understand since the incarnation and the finished work of Christ that it is not at all inconsistent for us to say that Jesus, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Lord. And certainly all the blessings that David expressed in the psalm are even fuller for us. A cup of salvation that overflows with a wine of joy. The abundance of being in the household of God, a lot in life that's secure, unbounded, borderless citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, an inheritance of riches for all eternity. When we think of the riches we have, it helps us, first of all, to have confidence in the fact that we belong to God and he's near, but it also will help us to look at all those other gods that the world chooses to worship and we recognize we don't need them. And we despise the false worship that we see out there in the world. In our culture, unlike many cultures, in our culture, we don't see those little gods that people fall down and worship and carry around and worship. But we have plenty of gods. We live in a very idolatrous generation. And we look around us and we can't help but think what a tragedy it is that, that for so many people that we know their highest good is only what this world can afford. Their highest good is only what this world can afford. And, and we rightly describe that condition as misery. And so even the heights of their delight without the Lord is still misery. There's no earthly comfort really, that could ever satisfy the way that the Lord satisfies. In the greatest times and the worst times. But for the saints of God in the greatest times and in the worst of times, we can say the Lord is our God. 
and outside of him we have no ultimate good. We testify to that, make that extreme, extreme statement, I have only one comfort in life and in death. I have never heard a Christian, I have never heard a true Christian say anything like, my highest good, my comfort is in this and that and the other thing. Certainly not any little gods, but not even the good things. Even the good things in which we might find comfort, our provisions, our friends, and our family. I've never heard a true Christian say, that's my only comfort. It's my only comfort in life and death. That's, that would be an unsatisfied soul. But here's what we testified to. Here's our testament. I hope this is not overplayed. I would say never. But do you testify to this? And when you testify to it, are you telling the truth? I'm not my own, but belong to, belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Is that your comfort? Can you say that your highest good is in your relationship with God? That in the best of the best of things that you have joy because the Lord is in it. And in the worst of the worst of things, the pain and the sting is muted because the Lord is with you. But with the Lord always before us, we have that higher view that takes us above our circumstances with our eyes fixed on the Lord. Hope can rest in the good that you have in the Lord. And may your heart instruct you tonight as you lay down and rest that you truly have great riches with the God who is near. God Almighty, covenant God who's bound himself to his people, your Lord, your Savior, Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do thank you for the wonderful mercy that you've shown to us. And Lord, when we begin to assess our lives, I trust that my brothers and sisters in here along with me can say we have many, many wonderful blessings in this life. Provisions that you've made, family and friends that so often a joy and a blessing to us. We thank you for those things. But we pray that we would never make those things to be gods before us. But Lord, we delight in those things because you are our God and we know that you've provided those things for us. So we do, we do appreciate those many, many blessings you've given to us. But Lord, while our lives are certainly filled with many blessings in many different ways, Lord, I know, we know that many of our lives also carry much sorrow. And so, Lord, we pray that in our highest joys and even in our deepest sorrows, that we would remember that you, our God, 
the one true living almighty God, our faithful covenant God, are near to us. You keep us, you bless us, you uphold us, right at our right hand, always near, always caring. Our Lord, our Master, all through Jesus Christ. We praise you for that and we thank you in his name. Amen.